Morning. Roberto here for the Expeditioners, coming to you from my Airstream up high, camped currently uh, with a half a meter of fresh snow outside. And so I thought it only appropriate that tonight I would begin by taking you on some of my harrowing adventures up in the mountains. So I'm going to, uh, I've got three mountain stories for you tonight, um, all obviously mountain related. Uh, each time I came away with some lessons that helped both for my life and for <laughs> what not to do on the next adventure. So I'm going to begin, I think, by taking you all the way down to South America, where I happened to find myself near the end of the world. I clenched my eyes and curled into the fetus position, hoping my fears would dissipate. It had the opposite effect. The wind just seemed to roar louder and the rain fall harder. I opened my eyes again. My spirits fell. The side of the tent was within inches of my face and was being held there by a sustained fury that can only be found on the peak of a mountain, which is where I was. The idea to come had seemed a grand one at the time. Now it seemed that it might be my last. I'm convinced Murphy's Law joined me on the flight from Chile to Argentina the week before. The first domino fell when I came down with a wretched fever in an ant-infested hostel in Buenos Aires. I looked to remedy this by buying the first available ticket to the world's most southern island, Tierra del Fuego, which lies off the coast of the tip of South America. Or, more spe specifically, to its fabled capital city of Ushuaia, population 63,000. 280. Purported to be the southernmost city in the world, I thought it would be an ideal launching point to go solo kayak camping. I say purported because Chile's Puerto Williams, with its 2,000 residents, also claims to be the southernmost city, though the country does concede city status requires at least 5,000 residents. Now, Domino 2 fell as I stood looking out at the famed Beagle Channel from Ushuaia's harbor. Reflected back were monstrous waves jostling at the wicked wind's behest. Not exactly great paddling conditions for a novice kayaker like I was at the time. Now, frankly put, I still wouldn't do it. <laughs> My rationale mind told me attempting it would be certain death. So I lolled around Ushuaia for a few days, trying every eatery and coffee shop. Really not that many, hoping the weather might change. But soon I had to accept the reality. I wouldn't get to paddle and so concocted the idea of hiking up the Fijian Andes just north of the city. The fellow who was going to rent me a kayak took pity on my situation and offered me a drive up to the trailhead that leads into the mountains. The next domino collapsed after a pit stop. My kind-hearted driver sped off before we reached it. Being accustomed to the lighter packing ways of a canoeist, my 80-pound pack with pelican case, tripod, extra pair of boots was most definitely overkill. I decided to lighten my load by stashing some of the unnecessary stuff on the road, something I've come to do many a time, and then marked the spot with my GPS. Lightened, I set off. After a couple of kilometers of hiking over boggy terrain and sighting giant beaver dams, with minimal predators here, beavers are, like, massive. <laughs> my stride was reduced to a hobble, when my left heel began to hurt. Now, take into account, I'm solo here, I'm high up in the mountains, and there isn't a soul. Changing into my other shoes would remove any ankle protection I had, 
So instead, I decided to change just one of the shoes. After a couple of days of mountainside camping and gaining terrain, I found a place to rest for the night, the Hotel Refugio Bonete, which is not really a hotel. It's actually just a cabin, as we would find here in Canada. Now, these types of ca cabins are just, you know, four walls, a roof, and, and a bunk. But they're not unlike the huts you rent from the Alpine Club of Canada when backcountry back trekking. The Refugio Bonete consists of four sturdy wooden walls, a roof, a wood stove, a table, a chair, a bunk bed. But best of all, it has a spectacular view. So I felt a little better. It was when looking out from the hut that I had the brilliant idea of cutting my hike in half uh, and, and calling it to rest for the night. Um, give me a moment here, just catching my breath. It was when I was looking at the hat that I had the brilliant idea of cutting my hike in half and cutting across the mountains to my intended destination, La Laguna Esmeralda, a stunning lake in the Fijian Andes. My planned route was to circle around the mountains and go to the lake. But when I was up on Cerro Bonete and balancing my precarious load, I could see that I could maybe find a different route. Hiking it up from the southeast is easily done without any technical climbing. Nonetheless, I learned you have to be prepared for constant shifts in weather there. Ushuaia has an average of 214 rainy days a year, and its subpolar oceanic climate can leave you chilled to the bone if you're not properly geared up. My arrival at the summit was greeted with a break in the clouds, a light wind, and perfect little patch of snow under the peak. The view was inspiring. Feeling elated, I pitched my tent and set to dinner, somehow ignoring the warning signs while cooking, even though keeping the stove lit was increasingly difficult with the wind. Absent-mindedly, I began piling rocks around the tent until I had built a three-foot wall around my shelter. And it was while doing this that the ridiculousness of my chosen campsite dawned on me. I was totally exposed. Alarmed, I dove into the tent, one tends to look forward to diving into the tent after a long day's journey. Curled up in my sleeping bag with eyes clenched, hearing amplified, I was about to understand what it means to camp on the top of a mountain at the end of the world all alone. Poking my head out of my bag, I was greeted by the side of the tent and was sure the poles were going to snap. But it wasn't until I heard one of the stones I had placed fall off its pile in a clatter that I began to consider my situation. See, if I stayed inside the tent, there was the possibility I'd be ripped off the mountain and tumbled down it, trapped inside of it, because I was really on a very narrow spot on the edge of the mountain. Or if the wind picked up enough, the stones would simply fall on top of me. <laughs> That's how much space I had. So I scrambled to put on my gear head to toe and jetted outside. The wind was playing havoc with the rain, up, down, left, right, it came from everywhere, but I had my Gore-Tex head to toe and my tent looked like a rag flapping wildly in the wind. I felt a lot more comfortable outside than in. The thunder clamored both around and in me and clouds seemed to burst with the lightning, brightly illuminating swaths of land below. I straddled a nearby ridge and proceeded to gaze at one of the most amazing displays of wild, powerful nature that I have ever seen and I did so for hours. For the first time, I understood the special allure of the mountains, 
to fabled and famous climbers. The will and strength required to hike or climb a mountain is not for the weak of heart. It can be absolutely miserable at times, especially when coupled with adverse weather. But the intrinsic rewards, I must say, are unmatched. Perhaps it lies in the perspective that only perilous activities can bring. Things didn't go as expected on my solo adventure in the Andes, but experiencing that spectacular storm in spring's midnight haze at what seemed to be the top of the world at the end of the earth is something I wouldn't trade for anything. Sometimes it's the mishaps that really get you where you want to go. Unfortunately, in our case, this is a bit too often. <laughs> and that's why I thought it apt that for each of these stories that I give advice on what to bring or what to do. You know, at the time I was 21, I'm a little bit older now, so there was a bit of inexperience that perhaps got me into trouble, even though at that point I'd already been exploring for 12 years. Now we're going on 25. Yet it would, would have been impossible for me to afford the formal training or guides often suggested as a precursor to partaking. So as many people, whether it be with photography, adventure, expeditions, I taught myself. So my wisdom comes from trial and error, and I happily impart some of the things that I would recommend you avoid. So for one, on the backcountry, mountain trips, pack much lighter. I tend to carry a lot of cameras, and having a swinging pelican case off my bag was not optimal. I should have packed the lenses and camera in my bag or on a side pouch. The swinging case was often unbalancing me, and several times on the ledges, I felt my footing go a little bit, and it would be much better if I had just simply taken a better, smaller load inside the pack. Of course, never camp on the peak or on the ridgeline below it. Apart from the fact that you're very vulnerable to super high winds, lightning, storms, snow, um, and all of that, if ever you have to retreat because of any of those weathers, you're in the most exposed part of it. And I've frequently had 60, 70 kilometer an hour winds up in spots like that. But being a photographer, influencer, videographer, and all of that, you want to get the shot. And so you get up there and your tent would, looks just magic. Like it looks perfect set up on the top of a mountain with the clouds and the landscape. And so oftentimes, and I have to say oftentimes, because even then I don't always take my own advice. I'll tend to take the shot and say, you know what? The wind isn't that bad. And then halfway through the night, I quickly realize why it was a terrible idea. Wool socks are the best. At, uh, I remember on this trip, I didn't have wool socks. I had cotton socks and my feet were super cold. Um, the wind was crisp because you're near the most southern point peninsula. Well, the most southern point tip of uh, South America. There's a lot of humidity in the air. And so it, it's a damp cold. So since then, I, I think I've mentioned it on previous podcasts. I only wear merino wool uh, and, and merino socks. Um, I remained totally dry with my waterproof pants and jacket. But the boots that I had at the time were also completely soaked. So now that I, I have different mountaineer boots, so I, I recommend most definitely take a, a good, reliable pair of boots that obviously you're not breaking in for the first time. Wool hats are also the best. If you peruse my social media, Instagram, Facebook, any of that, you'll see that I often or pretty much always in cold weather 
have uh, a red toque or a or a blue one. And they're merino wool. They're from Iceland, um, and Icelanders have nonstop terrible weather. So these toques, they really, they you know, we all lose. Uh, the majority of our body heat from either our hands or our head or our feet. So these are the type of spots that you really, really want to keep warm. And it makes the biggest difference in the world to have happy feet on top of a mountain. So continuing on the tangent of mountain, you know, I have a half a meter fresh snow outside. Today, the idea was to go skiing, but my lady was doing a uh, avalanche course on how to react and uh, how to test the snow and, and all of those things. So I had the, the three kids all day and I couldn't go out for a lap. But I'm very happy that she went to do this course because as I often jest to her, I'm like, you know, I would save you, but I'm not too sure you'd be able to save me because in an avalanche, you only got about 15 minutes before you can get the person out. Another tangent, I have a friend that uh, keeps telling me, oh, let's go backcountry skiing. And he's a he's a split boarder, so he uses a snowboard. And one of the things that boarders don't realize is that if the snowboarder is below me on the mountain when the avalanche has hit me, it's going to take him 15 minutes or 10 minutes to uh, split his board, put on the skins, adjust the bindings, and go back up to me. So one of the things I've learned being a backcountry adventurer is that if I'm going on a backcountry ski trip, I, I will go with friends that are skiers and other friends can join that are split borders, but only if I have a skier friend there. So just a small tip on, on when you're heading to the backcountry. My wife tomorrow heads out with the transceiver, the probe, some guides and a group of ladies to, to put it into practice as well. So I'm very excited because now... Perhaps she will be able to save me as well. So on this tangent, um, I am Canadian, but I have climbed the tallest mountain in the contiguous USA. And, uh, and that was where I took the title of the Final 400. But, uh, but I'll give you my story first, and then I'll give you some tips. And if anybody wants to call in and ask about what one should do in these type of scenarios or, <laughs> or have their own story, more than welcome to. So... I just stood there looking at it, slightly dumbfounded and numb from both the minus 20 Celsius chill and the fear of what could happen. Only one section remained to reach the summit. Unfortunately, it happened to be the most dangerous, an extremely steep snow-draped gully known as the final 400 of Mount Whitney's Mountaineer's Route. A misstep here combined with a failed self-arrest, the process of sticking your, ass up, your ice axe into the snow to stop a fall, could lead to a 1,000-foot death plunge. And when you get to the top, there's actually little signs uh, that say who has died and who has slipped. So, and, and I believe there's been 13 casualties, but I would have to check that stat again. So standing near the edge, I glanced first at the abyss, next at the snowshoot above me, and then to my friend Phil. We only had one ice axe between the both of us, because there, that was my inexperience that I had put my ice axe in on the, my pack and I hadn't flipped it. And that made it just simply slide out on the approach of six hours, who knows where on the trail. At the dizzying altitude of 14,497 feet, California's Mount Whitney claims the title of being the tallest mountain in what's referred to as the contiguous United States. That's the 48 states between Canada and Mexico. It ranks 11th highest in the country with all 10 before it in Alaska. 
The mountain overlooks the famed Death Valley, which interestingly is the lowest point in North America at 282 feet below sea level. The desert, desert and hot weather of the valley contrasts starkly with the jagged snowy peaks of the Sierra Nevada mountain range, of which Whitney is part, especially in winter, when there can be a 30 plus degree Celsius difference in temperature from peak to valley. We had seen photos of the, of the view from the top of Whitney in the planning stages of our adventure. But as I stood there near the final, it was the view of the sun breaking in hues of red over peaks on our ascent that truly gave it justice. The climb made me understand why hundreds of people flock to the mountain daily during the summer. The vistas are unreal. Now, most people opt for the long and easy trek known as the Mount Whitney Trail. This sinuous hike, it's more like a, it's, it's more a hike than a technical climb, begins at Whitney Portal at 8,360 feet and is 35 kilometers round trip to the summit. You need permits in order to control the number of visitors. My buddy and I, on the other hand, were climbing the significantly less frequented route, the semi-technical Mountaineers route, about 19 kilometers round trip. As we were climbing at the tail end of winter, and it was a balmy minus 20, we encountered only three other people attempting to bag the peak. The rest of the time, we were completely alone. I was taking, uh, what are they called? Uh, the pills that help with altitude sickness, and they are, uh, they're basically blood thinners. To, and, and it really did help on, the, on this trip because you get really high up and you don't want to get delirious and whatnot. The first day of trekking had us snowshoeing through Lone Pine Creek Valley. My 70-liter pack and case filled with camera gear quickly began to feel more like an anvil as my lungs had to work harder in the oxygen-deprived altitude. Step, step, gasp, gasp, pause, repeat. That's basically the mountaineer's pace. Slow, steady, and absolutely exhausting. <laughs> most of the time you're wondering, why am I here? <laughs> but as with most things in life, the thing that requires the most significant effort is the most rewarding. After several hours of ascending, we found a spot on the lee side of a giant boulder to set up our tent. Completely out of energy, I was elated to finally stop. Though my buoyant spirit was short-lived when I realized that my ice axe had fallen. Without it, a slip on the precipitous slopes could send me tumbling down. I only had my poles left. Depending on the section, this could either mean broken bones or sure death. Chilled to the core in the freezing weather, I opted to ignore my worries and plunged into the tent to get some desperately needed repose. <laughs> You'll get this theme in my life of jumping into the tent to try and get out of the horrendous weather and whatnot but that is shelter you know even now uh with my lady and with the kids um that is the backup plan if stuff's going really bad whip out the tent set it up get inside and reassess i was chilled to the core i did not have a down jacket and lying there inert allowed the cold to seep into my bones making it one of the most miserable nights that i've ever had Bleary-eyed, we woke up at 5.30 a.m. to eat and prep for our summit push. We battled with our boots, which had frozen overnight into semi-blocks of ice. We donned them anyway. They began to unthaw with our body heat, and we were able to enjoy a dawn that greeted us with a brisk wind, clear skies, and a palette of color as the sun slipped into its daily routine. 
Now, little parenthesis here. The night before, we were so exhausted, and we made a stew and, and in a in a pot. And in the morning at four thirty five a.m., my buddy had boiled the water in the same pot without having cleaned it. So the water that we were drinking was horrendously tasting of like old chili. And this is what I had to hydrate for our summit push. So small parenthesis. <laughs> we put on our harnesses, slapped on the crampons and helmets, and grabbed packs filled with cameras, water, ropes, and energy bar. Luckily, Phil had his axe. Now, Phil, my buddy, is a more experienced climber, but I'll get to, to that in a moment. Our crampons crunched securely into the solid snow as we snailed up the first couloir after Iceberg Lake. With each step, breathing became more difficult, and I seriously pondered turning back. Still, I trudged on and consoled myself with the knowledge that the hardest part was behind us, and we were almost at the top. Up until the final 400, I had used my hiking poles, making sure to dig my feet securely into the snow with every step I took in order not to lose my balance. My thoughts were fuddled by the altitude and fatigue, but even then, my rational mind's clear voice sounded, alerting me that attempting this without my ice axe would be sheer suicide, and I could see similar thoughts were racing through Phil's mind. I deferred to him on what I should do. I literally told her, I'm like, dude, this is not a good idea. I, you're, I'm looking up at this sheer wall of ice where each step you take, like your foot would be half out of the snow. And I thought, man, I'm going to go up this with like poles. And, and if one slip, I'm, I'm done. So, and I know that he was thinking the same thing. So, but what he did next uh, never ceased to amaze me. And we'd been friends for 20 odd years or so. He gave me his own ice axe and told me he'd use the hiking poles instead. I think it's also because he knew that I, at that point, <laughs> had said, I'm done. I'm not going to try it without an ice axe. I've got no, no way to self arrest. And, and so I think, <laughs> I think it was partially his generosity and magnanimity, you know, <laughs> magnanimity in, in that situation. But I think also in part, it was, you know what, we're not going to get the summit if I don't give him an axe because he knew that I was, you know, I'm a guy that pushes limits and I will often put myself in situations that other people find extremely dangerous, but I'm very calculated. And when it's, it's something that is just way out of my comfort zone, that's when I say, you know what, mm, maybe this is time uh, to turn around. But he gave me his axe and, and we said, you know what? Let's go up. And then what's even more funny is that he decided to hike up behind me, which means if I was to fall, then we'd both die. But anyways, let me continue. Our, uh, our, crampons, our crampons, which are these like spikes that go on the bottom of your boots, made a resounding crunch in the brittle snow with each step up the final. Only half my foot would dig into the wall, leaving my heels suspended in midair. With each downward glance, vertical beckoned me to let go. Terrified, I locked my eyes on the mountain wall and just kept climbing. Once, I glanced around to see menacing clouds approaching and hurried as much as my weak, weakened limbs would allow. Now, another little parenthesis here is that at that point, halfway up the final 400, I pulled over into a, a nook while Phil was coming up and I called my parents on the satellite phone. And, uh, and they were in church. <laughs> I'm not a church going fellow, but my parents are. <laughs> and they were in church and 
my dad answered uh, and he went to the back because he knew where I was, right? And they were obviously concerned when Roberto would go on his adventures. And I, actually, I only had that satellite phone because in that time, we didn't have emergency beacons like we have now with the spot and the inReach and all those devices. So so really the only way uh, to, to reach anyone when you're completely off the grid is, is with a sat phone. So my parents had actually bought me the phone, which at the time was a $2,000 phone because they're like, ah, oh, we just want to make sure you can get in touch in case of anything. And I'm very grateful that I've always felt if ever I was in a situation, my parents are the type of people that can like call a chopper in and get all the logistics done. They're not the type of people that just be like, Oh, what do we do? No, they're like, call the coast guard, call this, do that, send that. So anyway, so I call, I, I'm in this nook and I called my dad and I'm actually a bit out of it because with the altitude and whatnot. And, uh, and I just said, Hey dad, I'm up on the mountain and this and that. And I'm almost at the summit and just wanted to say, hi, I love you. And later on, they told me that my dad, my dad's like, you sounded like death. <laughs> so, so they got really concerned at that point. So finally, we reached the summit ledge at 14,497 feet up. Moments later, we were both on top of the mountain, feeling, I suspect, like David must have felt when he slayed Goliath. I've yet to feel a greater sense of accomplishment, parenthesis. This was a long time ago. I've had many since then. <laughs> or energized from any of my thrill-seeking adventures. But hey, life is young. <laughs> so that is my Whitney story. And, uh, and I'm very proud to have climbed that mountain. I don't know if I would do the same routes now. Um, I, I was going to mention earlier, um, the only uh, life, in, our life insurance, the only thing that won't cover me is backcountry skiing. <laughs> so, so I always joke with my friends, if, I have an, if we have an accident on the mountains or an avalanche hits me, just throw the skis away, throw the boots, say I was hiking. <laughs> so, so they know that. They know to do that. But um, a few lessons learned from, from my Whitney climb. Always bring a down jacket. And that's a lesson that I've even applied to summer sea kayaking expeditions. Because people say, what, you take a down jacket to Turks and Caicos? And I say, yes, because if my sea kayak tips, the only thing I grab is a little dry bag that I keep on my deck, which is where I keep a down jacket and a few emergency things, swim to shore, and I can put that up and warm up quite quickly. And, uh, and I apply it for pretty much any sport. So whenever I'm skiing, if you go to my Insta stories, I'll be skiing, not tomorrow because wife will be up in the mountains, but Monday and, and I'll have my, I have my bag, which in it, I have a few emergency items, including my down jacket always, because you never know when you just need to heat up your body, uh, really well. So I always have a down jacket that compacts really small for the majority of the adventures that I do, uh, even in Mexico to give you an idea. Always carry an emergency beacon. You know, obviously at the time they weren't uh, they weren't around, but I did have uh, the satellite phone. Um, you never know what could happen. You know, when we when we got to the top, uh, that's just half the journey because the other half of the journey is getting down. And I think one of the scariest moments I had on that mountain was just going over the lip to start going down the final four hundred. Because imagine your imagine it's a building and it's a rectangular building where the edge of the building is just a ledge and then it goes straight down. Now imagine that's made out of snow. So how do you clamber over, turn around facing the wall and then start climbing down uh, the snow? And for the descent, uh, Phil belayed me halfway and then 
I belayed him. And then that's how we, we went down that section. But uh, the majority of mountaineering accidents uh, happen uh, on the way down, not actually on, uh, on the way up, because that's when you're, you're at your most exhausted uh, and fatigued and you're not paying attention and, and the weather's getting to you and the temperature and it's usually late as well. Um, <laughs> the other funny, not so funny uh, way in which people die on the mountains as well is when you're camped on, on a summit or you're camped uh, high up and it's snow outside, when you go to sleep, the snow will often crunch under your feet. So it, in, it indents, but overnight it gets a lot colder. And so the snow turns to like rock. And when the snow turns to rock, it just becomes a sheer skating rink. So on Everest and many other mountains uh, all over the world, and I think you'd probably Google it, <laughs> we'd find a, a lot of these terrible stories, but somewhat humorous um, and on a tangent is that we as mountaineers will will put on our our booties that are they're called, which is basically like a massive sock with filled with down, and and so when you step out of your tent in the middle of the night to take a leak or early in the morning, uh, to go start prepping your stove to 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 make some coffee or tea, whatever it may be, you slip and because you're on a mountain and an angled, you fall and then you just can't stop yourself because of course you don't have your mountaineering axe while you're going to take a leak outside of your tent. So just a parenthesis. I like parenthesis. Um, and obviously be ready to turn back anytime. I was ready on this one and I would have turned back if it wasn't for the fact that Phil said, here, take my ice axe. Because uh, otherwise, you know, many times I have I have turned back. Um, and that's part of, uh, of the adventures and, and knowing when enough's enough. So with my lady now, um, and actually for the last 10 years, basically our, our rule is when, when it gets really bad, you pitch the tent, you jump in the tent, you reassess and you figure it out tomorrow. So if anybody has any questions on any mountain adventures, I'm happy to take them. If not, I've got one more story for you this evening. And, uh, and I thought I'd take it away from the mountains and, uh, out to the water. I think I might have said this one before. Um, but, but, but if I had not, this is, this is my actual telling of the tale right after it happened. I felt tiny and scared looking at the monstrous waves forming in front of me. From the cockpit of my sea kayak, they looked positively titanic. Up to this point, they had come in rhythmic sets, that is, until the wind really began to howl. Then everything fell into chaos. Each wave measured eight to ten feet from trough to crest, while chopped waters slapped my long and narrow boat to and fro, my boat being a sea kayak. I had resigned myself to the idea that it was just a matter of time before my boat capsized. My chances of making it back to the rattlesnake-infested island, where I had left my girlfriend, now my wife, who knows how she made it through that, <laughs> were getting slimmer by the moment. Paddling directly into the wild wind and waves was my only recourse. But with every panic stroke, I seemed to be drifting further from land. Now, Georgian Bay is massive. You know, you have the United States on the other side. So I, you end up having a choice of either going towards the islands or trying to cross. And the island that I had left my lady was, of course, called Snake Islands. So the rattlesnakes aren't poisonous. But hey, <laughs> who wants to be on an island with a bunch of rattlesnakes? So once an Algonquin Huron trading route, it's easy to see how paddling Georgian Bay, which sits abreast of Lake Huron, but is attached to it, almost like a little sister lake, was the most logical and efficient route to travel. 
fur traders, explorers, and aboriginals must long have understood this. Archaeological digs have revealed that people have been living in Georgian Bay Shores for more than 11,000 years, at approximately 220 kilometers long by 100 kilometers across at its widest point, and with more than 30,000 islands, it's a camping paddler's paradise. That is when the water is calm. Shireen and I had only recently transitioned from canoeing to sea kayaking and had misguidedly decided that promotional photos of the bay showed it to be serene. Indeed, the previous afternoon, we had paddled from Snug Harbor on placid magma-like waters to the Snake Islands, which lay about five to seven kilometers away. But now it looked more like a scene from the perfect storm than anything else. And my white-knuckled grip on the paddle was getting harder and harder to maintain. The bay, like most of the Great Lakes of North America, feels like a veritable ocean, albeit unsalted and with no tide. To attempt to cross in a 17-foot sea kayak that was a little wider than a football stadium seat was, <laughs> I was beginning to realize was perhaps sheer folly. And yet, it was one of the only options I had. Often called the sixth Great Lake, there are only five, Georgian Bay has approximately 2,000 kilometers of shoreline. Killarney Provincial Park borders it, and Canada's oldest and marked footpath, the Bruce Trail, is in the area. Many of its islands are crown land, government-owned, and so there are no park fees and anyone can use them. Another of the things that I love about Canada. <laughs> Others, however, are private property, and it's wise to know the difference when landing on one. Though, in Canada, if you do land on somebody's island, you're most likely to be greeted with a cup of coffee than a gun. And actually, we were greeted on this island on a story afterwards by a guy that actually gave my wife or girlfriend at the time a dry suit because we didn't have one, uh, an extra one. But all these things were far from my thoughts as my kayak plunged deeper and deeper into the oncoming waves, which quickly spit me out in a kind of elastic corkscrew effect before raising me to the crest for an instant's repose. It was just after we arrived at Snake Island that Shireen had lost her paddle. She had placed it next to her kayak as she disembarked, but after our seven-kilometer open water crossing she was slightly disoriented and it slipped away with the waves before she could grab it soon we were left with one paddle and two kayaks makes me think of up a creek without a paddle <laughs> as night had fallen there was nothing we could do so we set up our camp on a rocky outcrop and went to sleep to the maraca-like sounds of our new slithery friends samuel de champlain was the first european to explore the bay calling it la mer douce because it's ocean-like properties and the fact it's unsalted. I can imagine him exploring the immense and clear waters, camping on the rocky islands, and enjoying the magnificent vistas. Swap animal skins for Gore-Tex and birch canoes for fiberglass, and voila, we were doing the same thing. When we awoke the next morning and had to face our conundrum, we decided I would paddle back to Snug Harbor, try to pick up another paddle, then head back to the islands as fast as possible. It was the first time I would have to leave Shireen alone in the wild, but luckily one of the few where we could access a phone signal. So off I went to fetch another paddle. The wind was mild, the sun was high, and I made superb headway, surfing petite waves back to the har harbor. I remember listening to Bob Marley as I went. It was going to be easy, I thought. <laughs> Little did I know how quickly conditions were deteriorating. A few hours later, back in my kayak, cockpit, I set out towards the islands in a nonchalant mood. The mellow music was a stark contrast of what was soon to come. I think I was about halfway back when the waves began to grow. Three foot waves, 
four foot waves, five foot waves, and they just kept getting bigger. The wind seemed to change direction suddenly and I could no longer beeline to the islands, instead having to point my boat directly into the waves. It was the only way I could stay afloat, yet it was sending me further and further from my lady. The music had long stopped, even though my iPod, imagine at the time iPod, not iPhone, was accessible in my sleeve pocket. I couldn't even take a moment to press play. Every fiber in my body was fully focused on not capsizing. But now I was at a crucial decision-making point. Having passed northwest of the islands, I had to make a choice. Either I attempt the 100-kilometer crossing, or I could try to turn my kayak around and surf the gigantic waves which were lapping in the direction of Snake Islands. Both seemed equally impossible. My thoughts of Shireen alone, and the fact I hadn't heard of anyone attempting such a ludicrous crossing, made me decide on the latter. I paddled frenetically to turn my kayak, but the following wave caught the tail of my boat and sent me hurtling along with it. I gulped and swallowed what seemed like a gallon of water as it rushed all around me, foam spraying every which way. I still don't know how I managed to keep my boat up, but I did. And I proceeded to kayak surf the most unreal, epic, scary, <laughs> harrowing, you'll, see, you'll hear the word harrowing a lot with me, <laughs> waves that I ever have. What I haven't forgotten was the sound of my jubilant whoops and crazed adrenaline-filled laughter as I made astounding speed back towards the islands. Soon enough, I was lily-dipping my paddle on the lee side of our rocky camp, elated at having come out alive and ecstatic at the sight of my bella. It's events like these that put into quick and sharp focus that the things that most are most important in one's life. And that was my Georgian Bay adventure with my lady. You know, since then, we made, we made sure to always bring an extra paddle. You know, paddles can be lost when you're capsized or wet exiting. Although that being said, I have never been tipped. And not to mention when your attention is elsewhere that you could just let a paddle drift away. Always check the forecast. Um, I'm terrible at that, but my lady is very good at checking uh, the weather frequently. And uh, take drinking water with you. In this case, it wasn't crucial because we're on Georgian Bay and, um, and the water's fresh, so we have all everything we needed. But if you're in an ocean scenario, then, uh, then it's quite, quite different. And you would wish that you had it with you. So I hope you enjoyed my three stories tonight. They're a little bit different than the norm of, of, of what I go chatting about on, on the podcast. Um, and, uh, and that's that. Tomorrow looks like an epic snow day again up here in Whistler. So perhaps I'll come back to you on the next one with some stories, stories of backcountry skiing. But of course, they won't be harrowing. They will be that I survived and all went well, right? <laughs> and then the story will come while I'm sitting in a jacuzzi. <laughs> Anyways, thanks a lot, everyone, for listening tonight. And uh, looking forward to keeping up this podcast going. Um, don't forget that on the call-in app, uh, you could always call in. You could always uh, write comments when you're listening. If you're not listening live and you happen to be listening um, afterwards, there's place when you can comment or ask questions and for each of the podcasts so feel free to do so and i wish you all a very nice evening tonight on this december what are we 
<laughs> That's how good I am. December 11th, 2021. Expedition are out. Good night.